0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Aaron Atwater and Dan Ballard. It's a basic fact of 21st century life that our data, meaning data that belongs to us and data about us, regularly ends up in the possession of people and organizations that we would rather did not have it. Mining our data and selling it, or otherwise making use of it, is central to the business models of most social media platforms and many other online services. And malicious interception or theft of data by third parties happens more than we might like to think as well. And whether this is being done by a company that's offering us a service, by a random stranger looking to make a buck, or by agents of the state, most of us most of the time would probably prefer that it not happen. And some groups of people face much more acute risks. For example, closeted queer and trans people who are exploring their identities in online contexts could face dire consequences if the wrong people were to find out. People, most often women, who have an abusive partner might face significant danger if their partner were to discover their efforts to seek resources and supports. Because of social stigma and risk of violence from both potential clients and from the state, some sex workers make use of various kinds of online tools and can face heightened risk when those tools are compromised or eliminated. And of course, privacy, anonymity, and security can be major concerns for people engaged in radical grassroots political work, whether that is keeping the logistics of a direct action secret from the authorities, or whether it's resisting the long-term surveillance that is integral to state repression of radical movements, particularly those based primarily in black, indigenous, and people of color communities. Aaron Atwater and Dan Ballard are two of the three founders of an innovative new not-for-profit organization based in Vancouver called the Open Privacy Research Society. Atwater is doing a PhD in issues related to the work of open privacy at University of Waterloo, Until recently, Ballard worked as a developer for a major company, a position he left to begin working full-time on open privacy's projects, and their third co-founder, Sarah Jamie Lewis, has followed a path similar to Ballard's, and in addition, she's the editor of a book that in part informs open privacy's work, called Queer Privacy, Essays from the Margins of Society. The first major project of open privacy is a protocol and application for messaging, called KUTCH. That's spelled C-W-T-C-H. While there are existing messaging systems that are fully encrypted, the innovation with Kutch is that it won't depend on a central server, and it won't leave a trail of metadata that can be intercepted. Metadata, meaning information about things like the source, destination, timing, and frequency of digital communications, can reveal a lot more about us than you might think, so Kutch will be a significant step forward in terms of online privacy and anonymity. They hope to have the application available for use within a year, and KUTCH will also serve as infrastructure for more elaborate projects they have envisioned for the future. In producing both KUTCH and subsequent projects, a key goal for the organization is usability. Most tools for encryption or online privacy that currently exist are very difficult to use, and they want their work to be the sort of thing that anyone can easily adopt. And unlike most initiatives to develop software, their work will also centrally involve people who are marginalized in various ways. Certainly this means the developers themselves in certain respects, but it will also mean deliberate work with people from a broader range of marginalized communities to involve them in the organization's governance and to ensure that their experiences and needs are centered in the process of design. Continuing to do research, writing, and public education around online privacy, anonymity, and security as they intersect with various marginalized identities is also part of the group's plans. It is in part the fact that they do not have to find ways to make money back for investors that makes this orientation possible. Incorporating as a not-for-profit is an unusual thing in the tech sector, but they're hoping that community interest in the kinds of tools they intend to build will lead to sufficient donations to keep open privacy afloat. And, yes, it is certainly true that the role of anonymity in creating safe and just online environments can be complicated. The vicious right-wing harassment campaigns of political opponents and marginalized people that we have seen in recent years have certainly made use of anonymity. But our current online tools and platforms are doing a pretty rotten job of handling such things, and Open Privacy hopes that new approaches to development that center consent and what they call design for the margins will allow them, quote, to build tools for people and for communities, tools that cannot be used against them, tools that give them control, end quote. I spoke with Atwater and Ballard about online privacy, anonymity, and security, and about the work of the Open Privacy Research Society.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Ballard. I've been interested in privacy and security pretty much forever, along with computers. I went into college and then university, getting a degree in computer science, and then I've been working in industry since. More recently, I left my job at Amazon to work at open privacy full-time.
2: I'm Erin Atwater. I am one of the founding members, along with Dan and Sarah Jamie Lewis of Open Privacy. I grew up in rural Nova Scotia as a closeted, queer, transgender woman. Growing up in rural Nova Scotia, as you can probably imagine, is difficult as a trans person. I was fortunate enough that the internet was starting to become a a thing at the time, and so I was able to explore my identity online, but it required needing to be anonymous, needing to hide the things I was doing and the ideas I was exploring from my parents, from my school, from my friends and the other people around me who definitely weren't my friends. And so I had an interest in privacy and an interest in anonymity from a very young age. I left a rural place to go to Halifax. I did a computer science degree at Dalhousie. I did a lot of research there on metadata analysis. So doing things like looking at encrypted traffic, things that people are doing that are encrypted and meant to be hidden, but using things like machine learning to figure out what they're actually doing without decrypting the traffic. So I learned a lot about how powerful current techniques for doing surveillance are during my undergrad and master's research. Now I'm a PhD student at the University of Waterloo. I study cryptography, security, and privacy. And I have an emphasis in my thesis on using this thing called threshold cryptography, which is a complicated mathy way of distributing private data across devices so that people like governments or even just everyday thieves can't steal your secret value only by compromising single devices. Open privacy is a not-for-profit organization that we've established in Vancouver, British Columbia. It is founded by myself, by Dan, and by Sarah, who couldn't be with us today, unfortunately. The intention of open privacy is to research marginalized communities and how they use existing privacy tools and how their needs aren't being fulfilled by the things that exist already and then to develop solutions for them that are actually developed both by these communities and developed for them to fill their needs that aren't being met already by existing tools. We're doing this not as a business, but as a not-for-profit, which is kind of a new idea. It's something that a lot of people haven't seen before. People aren't sure how to go about doing this successfully. We're trying to do this research and development using crowdfunding and donations instead of launching it as a business and trying to make a profit off of it. We're really hopeful that we'll be able to be successful with it.
1: When you find organizations that are building tech, they're traditionally companies and they're focused on profit, which usually starts at monetizing their users by collecting and then selling their data, which is completely at odds with our objective. So. That's a big part of what informed us deciding to go the nonprofit route, because it gave us the ability to ensure that we would do open source work in the open, we would never collect data, and we could guarantee that our focus was on protecting privacy and not compromising it for profit.
2: The technologies that we're interested in building, as opposed to traditional technologies where companies are collecting all of your data, they're looking at your emails and mining them to do targeted ads, things like that. And they're at any point able to comply with, say, a government warrant to give up all of your data. We're interested in making technologies where it's actually impossible for the developers of your software to even be able, even if they wanted to, to give up your data to people that ask for it.
0: Talk more about the initial conversations and questions that Open Privacy came out of.
2: A lot of it came from Sarah Jamie Lewis creating a book called Queer Privacy about a year ago, which was a collection of essays that was taken mainly from the queer and trans community. It had stories about coming out, about dating, about sex work, about intimate partner violence, and how they need privacy and how they need anonymity to explore their identities and how frequently these technologies fail them. I think all of us on the open privacy board have had experiences where technology has let us down personally. So for example, when I was just starting to explore my own identity, I started making second accounts on services. So I would make second chat accounts, second Tumblr accounts, Tumblr in particular, And keep in mind that I'm working on a PhD in security and privacy. This is the stuff that I'm supposed to be an expert in. And I ran into this problem where I didn't realize that Tumblr would allow other people to upload their entire contact list to the service and have their contact list be matched against existing accounts in the system. And without my consent, I got outed to several people that I knew who were able to find these second accounts of mine and see the content that I was posting without me expecting that or anticipating it. And so we were having a lot of conversations about consent, consenting to what's done with your data, who gets to see it, and how if you don't understand what companies are doing with your data, what's even possible for them to do with your data, you certainly can't consent to the sort of things that they're doing with it. And so, we thought that there's an opening for creating these sort of technologies that enable people to consent to what's being done with their data, and primarily by reducing the amount of data that's collected in the first place.
1: A really interesting field that's emerging is the area of consentful technology, where a driving factor in design and development of technology is focused on making sure the technology only does things that you consent to. But um, if you want to talk more about the founding of open privacy, I met Sarah while working together with her at Amazon, and she left over a year and a half ago to become an independent privacy and security researcher. She wanted to find out what the cutting edge of privacy and security and anonymity technology was, so she thought she would start by studying it. Unfortunately, after working on that for a while, she found out that the cutting edge was very terrible and she didn't discover anything really great that she could then spread to other people who might need them more. And so that's when I think she started thinking more about developing them. And that's where I started also thinking this could be something really good to do.
0: What has the organization building side of Open Privacy's work looked like so far?
1: We're still very early days. March 28th is when we announced publicly that we exist. Some of our early objectives still are just filling out our board, which we've already grown quite nicely, but we still have a few more positions we want to fill, and just starting to structure. So Sarah and I are already working full-time on open privacy, but we need to build out our capacity. Some of the other things we need are user experience experts. We're both developers, not UX experts by trade. We're starting to gather some volunteers who are UX experts and can start helping us Get better data about the marginalized communities we want to help and structure it better so that we can inform our design and make sure we really hit our objectives.
2: We've had tons of volunteers, our board, who we want to fill up with people with a very diverse range of experiences, ideally drawing from the types of communities that we want to serve. So, you know, people from other countries, immigrants, people that are undocumented, people of color. Muslims, sex workers. We want to make sure that we're developing not just for these communities, but with these communities and by these communities. And so we wanna make sure our board reflects that. We've also had volunteers just for helping us out with the design and with the development process, with the testing process, documentation, translation. There's a lot of behind the scenes effort that goes into making these tools and doing them right, making sure that they're usable, We want to make sure that for people that don't have the tech background that we do as the technologists on open privacy, we want to make sure that people are able to understand these tools to make sure that their threat models match up with what the software can actually realistically provide for them. And so having a wide range of people on our team has been a big deal. And so I think we've gotten over 30 volunteers now to help us out with this, which has just been amazing.
1: Usability is actually a really interesting area in this because there's, for a few decades now, definitely been a lot of people who are very interested in the technical side of security, privacy, and anonymity. But they've built tools that are really only usable by other very technical people. What tools are you setting out to work on? The first big tool we're working on is a chat protocol, and application called Kutch. that's built on some existing work, the Ricochet Instant Messenger. And it is instant messaging that is metadata resistant. So there's sort of a a scale of security that goes around any kind of communication. So you've got some things like SMS texting on your phone or Skype, where the connection between you and someone else, all of these things go through a central server. And if you're lucky, maybe you have encryption between yourself and that server. So someone who was watching your traffic couldn't see what you were talking about. But the central server can, which can be alarming. Like just recently, Microsoft has announced that they reserve the rights to monitor Skype video and audio sessions in case they want to look for whatever they deem to be offensive material. And then that information gets sent out to the other party that you're talking to. Some of the newer generation of communication tools we're seeing like WhatsApp and Signal give us end-to-end encryption. So between your client and the client of the person that you're talking to, the message is encrypted between those two points. And while it does pass through a central server for transit, that central server, whether it's Facebook who owns WhatsApp or it's Whisper Systems, I believe, who own Signal, they can't inspect it. The message itself is encrypted, but they are aware of all the traffic passing through their system. And it leaves behind what's known as metadata. They can start to build a big picture of who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, and what volume, what times. They can build out a social graph, which, as we continue to see from stories about Facebook, is actually very important. and can tell you a lot. With Kutch and building on top of Ricochet, what we're aiming to do is build instant messaging and communication systems that don't leave a metadata trail behind. A big part of that is we're building decentralized systems, systems where there is no central server where things go through.
2: Something that's important to note, too, is that Kutch is intended to be not just for instant messaging, but an infrastructure layer protocol. So it's very much laying a foundation for the things that we want to do in the future. So, for example, if we want to make, for example, a discussion forum or let's say something like a replacement for Craigslist Personals, which recently banned advertising for escort services. If we want to build services like this and provide protection of metadata on these platforms, the building blocks exist, So it is technically possible for us to go off and build these tools immediately. But it's very difficult because every person who wants to go make a tool, whether it's like a dark web marketplace or, say, a political activism forum, has to use these building blocks from scratch and build things from the ground up. And so Kutch is intended to lay a base and provide easy architecture and infrastructure to plug into so that we can easily layer new tools on top of these and have it built in the ability to protect not just the contents of messages going back and forth, but who is sending them, when they're sending them, who they're sending them to, metadata like this.
0: So how do you foresee this initial tool and the various things you hope to build on top of it later meeting the needs of people who are marginalized in various ways?
1: One thing we've just seen in the last month I believe only is the American new legislation around so-called trafficking FOSTA and SESTA these were very poorly thought-out bills that lumped all sex work consensual or otherwise in one giant bucket and called it trafficking and then pushed into law holding third party intermediaries, any service host liable for content they hold on their servers that was in violation of this law. And so we've seen possibly some of the fastest and largest movement towards censorship the internet's seen in the last month. It's impossible to keep track of all the stories, but like Aaron was saying, Craigslist is banning any kind of personals content around sex work a lot of sex work related websites like backpages and so forth have either been pulled offline or seized and as a result of this we're seeing lots of sex workers who had these tools for both just finding clients and also for vetting clients there was a bunch of tools that were used to share information about potentially dangerous clients with all these tools gone a lot more people are at a lot higher risk just engaging in work and that's just the latest months
2: Similarly, another one that's come up quite a bit is darknet drug markets. These are essentially online forums, marketplaces for people to do things like sell illegal drugs to each other over kind of a peer-to-peer way on the dark web so that law enforcement can easily track down the people that are participating. And one of the big tenets of our approach is harm reduction. The idea being that people who are looking to buy drugs are going to get them whether they're on the dark web or not. However, if you're buying something from someone on your local street corner, you can't go and rate your drug dealer on Yelp, for example. If your drug dealer is terrible, if they're providing you things that are laced with harmful additives, for example, there's no easy way for you to communicate that to other customers at that dealer. And so having online marketplaces hugely reduces the amount of harm that can come to drug users. And so by first of all, putting these things on the dark web, by protecting the metadata of the people, so protecting their IP address is a huge one, then we can help make sure that these people have access to these tools for making themselves safer.
0: You mentioned earlier that it's kind of unusual to be a not-for-profit in the sector that you're in. So talk about the challenges of that and about the question of funding.
1: There's a pretty standard, well understood model for at least attempting a startup, you start, you build a prototype, you build a business model, you start pitching it to angel investors, and you start getting investment with a nonprofit like this, it's donation driven. So we've already got two people, Sarah and myself working full time on this, we were able to do this after spending some time working at a larger tech company, and we're able to take some time and work on this full time until we can get up to speed. But yeah, we have a Patreon that we're starting to get up and running, and we've had a very positive response to in the last month since we announced ourselves from the community. But eventually, we need to get it up to a point where we can pay two or three of us to work full-time. And it's an experiment. We don't entirely know if this is possible or viable, but we hope it is, and the very early indications are very positive.
2: For anyone that's not familiar with it, Patreon is a crowdfunding platform primarily aimed at artists And creators of other online content like YouTubers, live streamers, for them to be funded directly by the consumers of the things they're producing. However, we're not actually creating creative products in the traditional sense of the word. We're trying to create free open source software. And there have been a few people that have started experimenting with this. There are certainly projects that have been funded by donations, but crowdfunding open source software development is a very new idea. We're one of only a few projects that I'm aware of that are just starting to explore this space and to see if it's even possible. And like Dan said, we're very hopeful at this point that it is.
0: I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about the ambivalent character of online anonymity. So as we've talked about, there are some ways that anonymity can be a super important form of protection for people who are marginalized in various ways. But the other side of that is that if you look at some of the vicious online harassment campaigns that have happened over the last few years, anonymity is one of the tools that gets used by the folks doing the harassing. Talk about that dual complex role that anonymity can play and about what that might mean for your work.
1: So a big part of what we are focused on is harm reduction. There's a lot of marginalized communities that regardless are at very large risk for a lot of things, just discovering who they are safely. Referring back to Sarah's queer privacy book, there's just a multitude of examples of people who are at risk for even just being cut off from their families and financial support being cast out of their communities just for existing as who they are. We think it's very important to give these people better tools to just exist.
2: The important thing to note about fighting harassment, which is a very difficult problem for sure, is that if we, as the developers of these tools, are technically capable of stopping harassment, for example, just take a really simple case of so say that we are able to ban a user from our platform, that means that people like the government can step in, and they can silence people as well. If it's possible for us to do it, then someone else can make us do it. And so in order to provide these tools in the first place, we are required to, unfortunately, hamstring our own ability to provide anti-harassment tools. That said, we can still provide a lot of these tools. For example, muting, blocking... Even some larger scale approaches like doing complex filtering, using machine learning algorithms on incoming data, incoming messages to look at their content and automatically do this uh, is still possible. The trick is that you have to decentralize it and you have to move where that action is being performed from being done on the company's servers in traditional setting to being done on the user side so that a user's data never leaves their own device. And so it is a little bit trickier, and it's kind of at odds with large companies' mandates of wanting to actually be able to data mine all of their users' messages, postings, anything they're communicating. But it is certainly possible.
1: Part of what we're building, again, is consentful technology. We want to build technology that just does what people want it to do. And harassment isn't that. People don't consent to be harassed. So... From a very broad sense, we definitely are focused on building technology that won't have obvious harassment vectors.
0: So if things go well for open privacy, where will the organization and the work be in a year's time and in a few years' time? In a year's time from now,
1: I would really like to see us actually having Kutch out on multiple platforms, say desktop and mobile, and actually starting to see people adopt it, especially in certain marginalized communities Right now, especially given recent legislature, there's a lot of communities that are being pushed off existing platforms and have a very dire need for anything, but especially something that actually protects them in the future and wouldn't let them be pushed off in the future again. So I would hope that in a year we'll be able to be bringing in enough funding to be still supporting us in a year so that we can do this work.
2: And then looking at a little bit further, in addition to Kutch, we've got a few other projects that are currently in the design phase. A lot of these build on the Kutch infrastructure, or they require it as a base, and so Kutch is a prerequisite to these other projects. We really want to spend time working with marginalized communities, working with queer and trans populations, activists, journalists, underrepresented minorities, what have you, not only to design these tools for them and to create them and implement them and make them available, But we'd also like to spend some time calling attention to their concerns, doing real scientifically grounded research, publishing it, making it available for other designers of similar tools to incorporate the same sort of principles that we want to incorporate in our work.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Aaron Atwater and Dan Ballard of the Open Privacy Research Society. To learn more about their work, go to openprivacy.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter.